Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. He was an historian, a scholar, an activist, and the curator of a collection at Temple University that tells the story of the African diaspora. Charles L. Bloxon passed away this week. We remember his life and legacy. I call him the great elephant who cleared the path for many African-American genealogists. The man who was driving the oil tanker on I-95 and lost his life in a fiery crash which caused the partial collapse of the bridge on the highway is remembered and mourned by his family. Charity Howard has more on the life of Nathaniel Moody. He says, so I want to be there for her, and I'm going to work and make sure that she has things that I didn't have. All that's coming up on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. This week, we lost an historic and cultural icon. Charles L. Bloxon, founder of the Charles L. Bloxon Afro-American Collection at Temple University, passed away at his home in Gwinnett, Montgomery County. He curated one of the most prestigious collections of African-American artifacts in the U.S., with more than 700,000 items relating to the global Black experience. We're fortunate to have it right here in our backyard. In honor of his legacy, we reached out to Diane Turner, who is the current curator of the Charles L. Bloxon Afro-American Collection at Temple University. He was a mentor to Diane as well as a teacher, and she kept in contact with him until the end. Diane Turner, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Let's talk a little bit about the man himself uh, from when you were first exposed to Charles L. Bloxon. What kind of person was he? Uh, well, I actually, I had uh, the honor to be his graduate student, uh, assistant student when I was working on my PhD in the history department. So um, he became a mentor to me. And later on, you know, almost like a father figure, um, when my father passed, um, he was always uh, there once I became curator here. But he was always a very kind, generous person, and he had a great passion for our history and culture. And so he was always encouraging me, you know, uh, that you can do this, you can do that. What an incredible mentor to have had, actually, um, Diane. That's incredible. 
talk about the influence that he had over you because you are very passionate about collecting artifacts and collecting things from African-American history. Talk about that passion that you had and the passion that the two of you share. So, I mean, he would share many stories with me, you know, like when he started collecting, he started collecting uh, back in 1942 when uh, his substitute teacher said that when he asked his teacher to tell him about Negro history in that context, her thinking was with the times. And she said, Charles Negroes had no history and it's their place to serve whites. Um, luckily for him, though, you know, his father uh, was a collector of many different things, antiques, and he used to be with him, and he also collected books, and his father got the local Black newspapers, uh, and especially the, the Tribune. Um, he also was a member of the NAACP, so uh, he was exposed early on to the Crisis magazine, and his um, grandfather used to sing Negro spirituals, you know, he would sing, there's a highway to heaven, you know, walking up King's Highway. And um, he found out about the Underground Railroad through him. So when his teacher told him that, he was devastated, you know, in the classroom and very hurt. But he knew that there was African-American history or Negro history at that time. So it actually fueled him to start collecting. And so he collected anything that had Negro, colored, Afro-American, Afro-Cuban, Ethiopian, Egyptian, Jamaican, uh, you name it. So, you know, he understood, you know, like he connected African descent. So early on, when other people were talking about dividing into different, he saw uh, the whole African diaspora in Africa the connection. And uh, that's one of the great things when I worked for him. Uh, if you come to the Blocks and Collection, we have over 700,000 items now. When he first brought his collection, he brought 20,000 items. Uh, so over the years, um, it's a one-stop shop for most people because we have African-American history, African history and culture, and also um, the, the African diaspora. And so, you know, from him um, and being exposed to this history, you know, and he would sit there and, and give you history lessons. I mean, that's, that's how um, his collection actually came to Temple in the first place, because he started writing articles about African-American history. And the um, Christian Monitor uh, did a story on his private collection. Then he started writing a monthly article in one of the local Montgomery newspapers. And after that, you know, uh, residents from Norristown would bring their um, children to his house for uh, history lessons. Um, and one of the residents of Norristown said, you know what, when I was uh, young, my dad, whenever my brother and I, in order for us to go out on the weekend, we had to go Wednesdays to Mr. Bloxon's house uh, to get a history lesson or else we weren't allowed to go out for the weekend, you know? So, you know, I mean, he had such an influence on people. And for me, being exposed to all of this history and hearing these stories, you know, like you wanna know who you are. 
right? That's a question that everybody wants to be able to answer. So by being exposed to all this history, it made me love myself, love my people, and it turned into a universal love for everyone. But the love has to start with you knowing yourself. Tell me a little bit about the African-American markers that are left in and around the city and actually throughout the state of Pennsylvania that Charles L. Bloxon had a hand in. He got a grant from a Dr. Bernard C. Watson, the first African-American in charge of the William Penn Foundation. And he gave Mr. Bloxon a grant. And through that grant, he was able to install 65 historical markers of African-Americans in Philadelphia. So he was just that kind of a person, you know, like if um, he knew you and he knew that you were a person of integrity, he really liked you. If you weren't, you know, it'd be another story. (laughs) I'm so sure. I understand. But, you know, he was, you know, bigger than life. And, you know, the thing is like everybody... Once he did all of this work and um, became well-known, you know, people want to be around you when you become famous. And he would share with me sometimes and he would say, Diane, you know, it's fine to get all these recognitions and everything, but nobody knows Black scholars and writers what you have to go through to literally tell your stories, you know, because um, you're dealing with the structure that oftentimes doesn't um, invite Black scholars and writers. So, you know, like when he came to Temple with these 20,000 items, he had purchased all of this himself, all of the books, you know, all of his writing and research that he did, you know, it came out of his pocket. He wasn't getting fellowships or sponsors to do this work, you know, so he was involved in this group called Generations Unlimited. And they came together and they were an advocate to have, once they discovered that at Six and Market Street, where he called it the so-called president's house, uh, the Liberty Bell was moved there. And they found that enslaved Africans lived there. He wanted to have some type of monument there recognizing not only the enslaved Africans, but the free Blacks and others um, who were in Philadelphia. And so uh, through him, at the time I was working at the African American Museum, and they used to uh, meet there and have their meetings. And because of their activism, finally the city and uh, the state, and I think the federal government gave money to um, have um, Uh, architectural firms do bids to talk about what could be constructed at Six and Market Street. So uh, through him, a architectural firm contacted me and um, uh, asked me to be curator. So by looking, I watched him, you know, um, with other scholars, encourage them. and, And he would always be telling, write your stories, write it down, you know, like you need to tell your stories. Diane, were you in contact with Mr. Bloxen uh, in the days leading up to uh, his death? And, and, and what were some of the conversations that you were able to have with him? He retired in 2006. And in 2007, they had a national search and they picked the right person, me. And he was on the search committee. So, you know, once I came here, I would tell people, you know, as a historian, you can't have it any better than 
to have a living founder. What became a tradition between the two of us, every Sunday, I would call Mr. Blotson. You know, there would be inquiries, I would call him during the week, people who wanted him to talk. But on Sunday, it was like a personal call. And so I was still talking to him. Um, he was in and out of rehabs in the hospital too. So I would call him on Sundays and he would always say, what's going on? You know, like what's going on with me? What's going on in the Blossom collection? You know, Um, Diane Turner, in the minute that we have left, if you could just encapsulize uh, Charles L. Bloxon's legacy, what should we think of when we visit his collection, when we see his picture, when we read about his life, what should we remember about Charles L. Bloxon? That he collected, preserved, and disseminated information about people of African descent, their histories and culture, because more than anything else, he believed that knowledge is power. Well, that about does it. Diane Turner, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, We lost a cultural icon. You lost a mentor and a friend. Thank you for sharing your experiences and your story. Uh, Raquel, thank you. But his legacy lives on through all of the people that he's touched. Uh, The Bloxham Collection will continue to move forth with his mission. And so we might not be able to see him, but I know he's one of my angels. Yeah, that's special. Take care. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much. Be blessed. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. Another colleague of Mr. Bloxon was professor of Africology and African American Studies at Temple University, Malefi Asante. Asante says Bloxon is a man that he won't soon forget. Tell me, Professor Asante, from your perspective, what kind of man was Mr. Bloxon? He was a determined man, but a man who was inclined always to speak about changing the narrative about African-American history. Uh, I smile because he was also complicated in many ways. Uh, He resurrected many books about African people uh, here and around the world. I met him in 1984, which was the year I came to Temple to chair the Department of African-American Studies. He had just donated his collection to Temple University. 
And he was a friend of Peter Leochorus, uh, the very well-known president, former president of Temple University, who basically encouraged Mr. Bloxon to donate uh, his uh, materials to Temple uh, in exchange for being the curator until uh, he retired. Uh, and uh, this collection that he donated to Temple and worked to enlarge at Temple is one of the five most important collections of African-American and African materials in the nation. This is a remarkable achievement by somebody who in 1984 had uh, really decided that it was essential that the works that he had collected be preserved. And he had started this when he was a teenager. And most people who knew him knew that he had been an athlete, an incredible athlete at Penn State and football, but he was also an intellectual, a historian. I call him the great elephant who cleared the path for many uh, African-American genealogists. I mean, people who would uh, call him up or write to him and ask him how could they trace their uh, family's history and so forth. Uh, he knew uh, Philadelphia uh, and Pennsylvania like uh, the whole city and the whole state uh, were his uh, neighborhood. This is how deeply involved he was. And I think he's one of the first people I knew who, um, when he spoke about Harriet Tubman, you could see tears in his eyes, it welled up in his eyes. He talked about how this young woman with her fierce bravery and her fearlessness uh, was so incredible and uh, the suffering she went through. And yet the fact that she was able to do so much for African people. So Mr. Bloxon, I always think that at Temple, I grew up with him in the sense that I came in 1984. 1984 was the year that the Bloxon really took off. And uh, during that time, Peter Leocurus also encouraged us to create uh, the PhD program in African-American uh, studies at Temple. Uh, and this was uh, an electric time. It was a very powerful time uh, with both Bloxon and myself on the campus as well as uh, the, the beginning of John Cheney's powerful presence and legendary presence at Temple. So all of his years, I knew him as a person who you could never have any uh, discussion about African-Americans in Philadelphia, African-Americans and the Underground Railroad, African-Americans who created the Harlem Renaissance, People forget that the Harlem Renaissance started with Elaine Locke, who was a Philadelphian. So he he knew all of this. He had all of this in his head. Yeah, he was an incredible man. And I just want to, you know, just always, you know, say to people that he's the kind of person we all I call him a Robsonian character because Paul Robeson was one of his uh, models, and that he he saw Paul Robeson as a hero of his. So I, I hope that maybe one day Temple will name a building after him. Wow. 
But I like the way you called him a Robsonian character. That's perfect. And, yeah. you know, I did speak with Diane Turner, who's the current curator of the, the Bloxon collection at Temple. And she reminded me of something that probably really sparked this passion within him. And you're probably aware of the story of when he was in the fourth grade, a white substitute teacher told him that she was pretty sure that Black people or Negroes, as she stated, had no history. And that they were just here to serve white people. To be told that at that young age and then to be driven after that, it just seems like this is what sparked that that hunger for truth and, and that hunger for the real story of African-Americans after having been told that. Yes, Raquel, I heard him tell his story many times. And I'll tell you something else that had a big impact on me. And that is that, when I met him at Temple University and I went and I saw the collection, there was a book that he showed me. And he said to me, he said, you would not believe what people did to our people. He said, here is a book that was the cover of the book was made from the skin of a black person in America. I was like, whoa. Wow always just bring chills to me. He was a remarkable human being, and we will always um, remember him. He was also quite determined in his ideas. He could be argumentative about issues. He was complex in that way. What he believed, he believed. And I know he and I um, uh, had one discussion about the Underground Railroad because I felt that perhaps he was a little too romantic about the Underground Railroad. Well, when he finished with me, I didn't believe he was romantic about it at all. So that, okay. that is Charles Bloxon that I know. <laughs> yeah. You know, we talk about, um, you know, the hunger for the truth and having an appreciation for our history. How can we use his legacy to further um, influence young people today who may be taking some of our history for granted? They must know it. We must teach. And this is why when we hear stories about people banning books and banning African-American history, I mean, uh, uh, you know, DeSantis, I, I'm one of the people banned in Florida. He banned Malafia Sati. You can't be teaching his books. Oh, my this goodness. Is this is insane. This is nuts. You know it's nuts. Everybody knows it's nuts. But Mr. Bloxon should be elevated in our uh, minds and the view of uh, our young people. They need to know here is a man who loved African-American history so much. And African-American history is the core of American history. If you don't know African-American history, you can't know this country. That's How right. you know America and you don't know African-American history? Right. It's part of the fabric of everything in this country. The law, education, the economy, all of that's wrapped up in African-American history. And Bloxon knew it. And Bloxon would fight for it. Professor Asante, thank you so much for sharing your memories of Charles L. Bloxon. Thank you very much, Raquel. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back 
to Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. We've all heard about how much work is being put into repairing I-95 after an accident caused a partial collapse of the roadway, but we can't forget that a man lost his life and a family is mourning. Sharaday Howard has more. The family of Nathan Moody says they're mourning the man they called their rock. Nathan was the Philadelphia man who died June 11th when the tanker truck he was driving crashed on I-95. He was delivering gasoline when his truck caught fire, leading to the collapse. 53-year-old Nate Moody leaves behind his partner Teresa and three children, the youngest his seven-year-old daughter, who's endearingly referred to by family as Little Mama, who Isaac, Nathan's cousin, says saw her father as a true superhero and never left his side. Well, I'm going to tell you all something. Um, He went by Nate the Great. He went by Nathan. It all depends on who was calling him that. My dad and one of them, brothers and sisters, called him Nathan. I called him Nate. I just saw Nate that Friday. You know, he always stopped by the house like two or three times a week, sometimes more. And he'll have little mama with him. You know, little mama was is his younger was his younger daughter. And him and I, we sit down and talk. Little mama be over there. I put on the Disney Channel, and Nate and I be talking. We eat lunch. And uh, when I saw him Friday, we were talking about the cookout that we have coming up. And the last thing we said to each other was, love you, cuz. We gave each other the, the handshake. It's a family handshake that we do. And we gave each other a big hug. And I said, okay, bro, I'll talk to you either Saturday or Sunday morning because we always routined like that. Uh, Nate would call me like four or five times. And, you know, because I'm, I'm off, like during the week when little mama was in school, I'm off work. I'm going to head on home and, and freshen up a little bit, then go pick little mama up from school. Um, or he would get home so he can take little mama to school. You know what I mean? So he was a family man. I mean, first and foremost, he was a family man. Yes, he was. Uh, little mama's going to be real hurt because everywhere Nate went, it was like she was like a bump on his hip, you know. Um, and every expression of the term daddy's girl, Nate's whole, his whole being for starting his trucking company, he actually named his trucking company. He gave it the acronyms after his daughter, uh, AJBM. He named it after her. And he actually pulled me into trucking. You know, but as far as the world to him, man, we talked and he was like, Ike, when she was three years old, he was feeling so bad because he was doing over the road trucking. And he's like, man, I I don't I I can't do that no more because my little mama getting older and I want to be that father in her life. I don't want her to be looking at nobody else as a father figure. You know, he said, so I want to be there for her and I'm going to work and make sure that she has things that I didn't have. I don't know. I, I don't know what happens next. We got to get through this first. We, I called Teresa. I, I tried to make sure she's okay because we went down to the medical examiner's office. Um, we wasn't able to view anything because they were doing the autopsy then. Where we go from here, honestly, is hour by hour, and we can start that next step. We, we, uh, we, we can't heal yet. Um, we can't heal in the sense of people just putting it past now because we don't have closure gave the preliminary findings and said, yes, it was Nathan. But we, right now, we really, we're really just going to take it hour by hour and see where we go from here, how we're going to move from here. Right. Now that morning, he was taking a trip that he took regularly. Not just, not just a, a, a trip he took regularly. He, that was a route. I mean, he knew this route. Nate was, um, before he bought his own truck, and, and continue to stay with TK Transportation, mm-hmm. Nate was already doing this run. 
you know? So when he got his own truck now, you're talking about months, three months, six months or more. Nate was doing the same run. This was a this was a routine thing, y'all. It wasn't local runs and regional runs. You liable to hit the same spot four or five times a week. So he knew this. He knew it. And because he knew it. I don't want to put my my words on what I think happened, but what I can say is I can't understand how it happened because he was an experienced driver. Yes, he was an experienced driver. And there was a there was a joke we had about him where that it was like you drive like grandma. You drive like grandma. So we used to call Nate grandma because he, sometimes he drove like, like real slow. And, you know, second nature, second nature. We're talking about somebody who been experienced doing liquid chemical transport for years. Not some Jack who just got behind the wheel two weeks ago. We don't just drive for ourselves out there on the road. We have to watch out for people on their phones texting, for people cutting us off. Instead of them waiting five or ten seconds for us to pass the exit, they'll cut us off, you know. And these trucks are equipped with uh, passive safety systems that will automatically break if something cuts you off. This is what civilians don't understand. The dangers that all of us truckers and for the ones who do flatbed with these big iron rolls on them, and for the ones who carry dangerous chemicals that I, was, I used to carry too, and for people like Nate, the drivers that are like Nate, did the gasoline runs or any kind of fuel runs or explosive chemicals or stuff like that, people need to respect us on these roads. You don't cut off a truck. You don't cause a truck to lose control. And if possible, some of these safety systems need to be rechecked, revamped or whatever, because... Nobody can't tell me that an experienced person, a loving father like that, somebody who, man, we were just talking about what we were going to do, all the future plans. So all of a sudden now, you got all these wonderful future plans. You got your life growing good. And now all of a sudden, you're just going to. But you're saying he wanted to come home. He wanted to come home. This man wanted to come home. It was a Sunday. It was a Sunday. He had nothing to rush for. Little mama was home already. It was a Sunday. Nate's routine was, and we laugh, his routine was, yo, cuz, man, I'm just gonna take it easy. Today is Sunday, I don't, have to, I don't have to do nothing but go home and let little mama run me crazy. I'll do these three or four runs, and I'm coming back home and I'm resting, cuz, all right, man, good. You know? That's what our previous conversations were like. It was a Sunday, it was a slow day. There was nothing Nate had to do to rush for. There's nothing that he ever rushed for. That speaks volumes for his safety and his responsibility out there as a driver, a trucker, and a, a person behind the wheel of anything on the road. Now you're talking about someone who had safety in mind always, home and family in mind always. He wanted to come home. Yeah. But also he was looking forward to this barbecue, this cookout. I get goosebumps when you say that because, of course, we already had this planned out months in ahead. That's the last thing Nate and I was talking about, too. He said, man, shucks, I can't wait. I know you're going to have some good barbecue over there and stuff like that. Uh, you know, we've already started telling family, no, we can't cancel. Because my man, Nate, he was like my little brother. He was a few years younger than me. He was like my little brother. When we had some very important people in our family die, Nate and I used to always say, we can't, you can't stop living. You can't stop. You just can't. Because even though we're hurting and people going through stuff, just... In remembrance, you know, and now I have another job to remind people when they come. Come on, y'all. We got to keep the smiles on our face. Re remember, remember the fun times. Remember the good things that we talked about with Nate. And I can say this proudly. He would not want anybody stopping 
their lives or stop the way you live your life because of a tragedy. You you can't. He, He would not want that. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter, at Bridging Philly, at Raquel on Air, and at Shara Day. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. For Shara Day Howard and our producer, Patty McMahon, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well.